The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The pandemic has upended the way people work. Zoom and Teams are part of the daily lives of people who are now able to work in a hybrid way, a few days in the office and a couple of days at home. But this change in the way we work has also led to a form of migration. People who lived in expensive cities like New York, Boston and San Francisco have moved to cheaper cities where the quality of life may be better and houses are cheaper. This sort of reverse brain drain has created opportunities for startups in once unloved destinations. But can this trend survive a recession when companies can once again get the upper hand and demand workers return to big city hubs? Stay tuned to find out. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast that interviews CEOs, central bankers and people of financial interest from around the world. And it's brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. In this episode, I interviewed Steve Case, the co-founder of AOL, or America Online, a company that rode the tech wave in the early 2000s. Steve now runs an investment firm called Revolution, which has invested nearly $2 billion in companies outside of Silicon Valley. I spoke to him when he was in New York on the eve of the launch of his book, Rise of the Rest. He delved into why it makes financial sense to invest in companies outside coastal big cities and also gave his impression of the current deflated stock market and how private companies can survive outside it. So, Steve Case, welcome to The Exchange. So good to have you here. Great to be with you. Well, I mean, Steve, we're very keen to chat to you for many reasons, but one specifically is you have written a book, The Rise of the Rest. So I just, this is basically, I guess, the idea that is sort of the opposite of a brain drain, right? So the pandemic has allowed people to live in places in America like Idaho and Ohio and not Massachusetts, New York and Silicon Valley, that they could, they could, you know, they can work remotely, they can, you know, be near a lot of other kind of big industries as well. And I just wondered, Steve, what made you write this book? And was there sort of a moment or something that happened that sort of inspired you to do this? Well, it really goes back a decade. I was asked by uh, President Obama to chair an initiative called Startup America Partnership. And that got me traveling around the country trying to encourage more regional entrepreneurship and also opened up my eyes to some some statistics that I was up until then just unaware of that that the you know, job creation uh, in you know, this country, most countries does not come from big companies or small businesses, but from new businesses, companies under five years old. So basically from startups, that was that was in- an interesting data point. And the second interesting data point was in the United States, uh, 75% of venture capital dollars are invested in just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. Um, And while not every company that starts wants or needs venture capital, the correlation between the very most successful companies, the companies like an Apple or an Amazon or or Google, they do raise venture capital. So it, it just opened my eyes to this. Sense of, well, interesting. America is this great innovative uh, nation, but actually, capital only goes to you know a few people in a few places. That then leads to people leaving different parts of the country uh, to go to the coast because there's not you know much money locally to, to start your company. And a lot of the other people who might be part of that startup sector have decided to leave. So there has been a brain drain over the last couple of decades. And so we decided to 
to hit the road with our Ride the Rest bus about eight years ago. We've now done, you know, there's a dozens of, of different cities, cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh and Minneapolis and Dallas and Phoenix and Miami, really all over the you know, country. And then we launched an investment fund, a Ride the Rest seed fund to invest in, in, in companies. Now we have 200 investments in 100 different cities. And the more I thought about it and the more I spent most of the decade traveling around, these are remarkable entrepreneurs building great new companies in these surprising places. And most people don't really know what's happening. Most people don't really know that they're interesting kind of startup, you know, kind of clusters being built in dozens of cities across the country. So that really led me to write the book. And then during the pandemic, while I was writing the book, obviously that ended up being, as you suggested, sort of a, a tipping point where it sort of led some people to decide, maybe I don't want to live in San Francisco or New York. Maybe I want to live someplace else. And so we started reversing a little bit brain drain, even seeing a little bit of a boomerang of people uh, kind of leaving the coast to, you know, go to other parts of the, you know, the country. And so I think it's just an interesting moment uh, when this book is coming out where we're kind of coming out of the, the pandemic and we have an opportunity to build on the, the work of the last you know, decade in terms of kind of leveling the playing field uh, for, for, for entrepreneurs everywhere and trying to close even sort of, sort of an opportunity gap. Um, yeah, so, so I think, uh, you know, I think we've made good progress, and, but it's an interesting, you know, I think it's an interesting moment for the, for the country. And so, Steve, take us back 10 years. What did you find when you went on this sort of, I guess, road trip around America to all of these different states that did have entrepreneurs, but, and, and that maybe some of these are the people, I guess, that the 25% that you're talking about that are maybe vying for that, that capital that does somehow make it out of those three states and go, goes elsewhere. What were you finding with the, with those companies? Were they somehow constrained by the fact that they weren't closer to the capital, or what were the ones that were really kind of doing well in that situation? No, I think they did feel constrained. It was harder for them in most of these, uh, you know, rise of the rest cities to raise that capital to get started. It was harder for them to attract the the talent, the teams they needed to really scale that idea. It was harder for them to. Know, be taken seriously in in some of their communities where where the startup sectors are not as as uh, noticed and 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 celebrated, uh, but nevertheless they just punching through and they were just saying we're we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna start the company right here and some of that is is become because some of the industry expertise sort of the, the domain expertise and even some of the strategic partnerships uh, you increasingly need uh, in this innovation economy. Some of these cities really can can accelerate the growth of your company for those reasons, particularly in that take take healthcare as a sector. It's one sixth of the economy. Some of the most important healthcare companies in the country are not in you know California or New York. They're in the middle of the country in Ohio with the Cleveland Clinic, or in you know Minnesota with the with the, the Mayo Clinic, or in Texas with MD Anderson. And some of the big companies that really also are likely to be anchor partners are companies like HCA in Tennessee or United Health in, in uh, again in, in Minnesota. So that's been a, a factor as well. And so it, it has been building really over the you know the last decade. And it's a you know story that hasn't really been you know told, which is why I decided to, to write the book. But I, I think people now are their eyes have opened to the fact that there are really interesting companies scaling up in these different places. We're starting to see some you know, pretty significant exits. Just uh, last year, there was a company in, in Atlanta called MailChimp that was acquired for $12 billion. Another company in Phoenix called Carvana, that's a public company now, I think $8 billion valuation. You know, one of the most important companies in health tech uh, is a company called Epic, uh, which does electronic medical records. 
they have 10,000 employees and they, they're located in Madison, Wisconsin. So as people started seeing more of these examples, it's sort of like, huh, maybe it is possible to you know, start and scale a company outside of one of the traditional coastal tech hubs. And that has led more people to reconsider where they should live, more investors reconsidering where they should invest. And I think that bodes well for this kind of rise of the rest phenomenon over the, over the you know, next, uh, you know, next decade. Steve, one thing that I think is, is really interesting about this, and I'll sort of share a sort of personal story that I do remember, it was basically a couple of months before the pandemic hit, I went back to work, um, having had my first baby, my daughter. And I remember, you know, it was full on again, 630 in the morning, leaving the house, all of that. And the idea that like remote working did just didn't really factor in. And we had all of the technology that we needed. We had teams, we had all of that stuff. And, you know, people have been outsourcing to India and and doing all sorts of things that do allow people to to work remotely. But before the pandemic, it didn't really happen. I'm just kind of curious, what are your views on what sort of stopped companies from from sort of allowing people to to live in these places that you're talking about, live outside of the kind of the real hubs for for business and technology? Well, I think most companies did feel like that the dynamics around creativity and collaboration really lent themselves to being in person. And there is obviously value to being uh, being in person. But because of the pandemic, because suddenly you couldn't be in person, you know, both companies and individuals, even schools, governments, others, had to embrace, you know, video conferencing technology, Zoom and other things, which have been around for, as you say, a couple of decades, but had always been off on the side. And that led to sort of a fundamental rethinking of work and a, frankly, a fundamental rethinking of at least some people of, of life. Exactly. Where do you want to live and how do you want to live and where do you want to work and how do you want to work and how is there more of an opportunity to have more of a remote or hybrid approach to, you know, to work? And now we're coming out of that and, and you know, we'll see how it settles out. Some some companies, some industries will likely move more towards being in the office a lot, uh, kind of the way it was before. Other companies have started uh, that are fully remote. You know, most companies will be somewhere in the middle, but it does create sort of a unlock in terms of this notion that you had to be in Silicon Valley or you had to be in New York City. And if you didn't live there, you really weren't going to be part of the innovation economy. You'd, you'd, you'd kind of be a kind of a, a second tier athlete, almost like the junior varsity, not not the varsity. Yeah. I think that that's changed. I think that bodes well for this this next uh, next chapter. But also the other point is, particularly with the tech companies, pre-pandemic, uh, all the big tech companies, I'm talking about Google, Facebook, et cetera, had started to distribute their workforces. They had started opening offices in these rise of the rest cities, like uh, you know, in Detroit or Pittsburgh or, or Ann Arbor or other cities, because they realized that people were coming out of those universities and some of them wanted to stay there, and what, but work for these companies that were headquartered you know, someplace else. And they also realized that the battle for talent in Silicon Valley was intense. The cost to, was keep going up, the tenure kept shortening, so it was hard to build a, a, a culture. And they realized as they scaled, they couldn't just be in one place, they had to be more distributed. So there's a bunch of these factors that have been kind of brewing, bubbling, I think the, the pandemic just led, led every aspect of it to uh, to accelerate. Yeah. And Steve, I think it's interesting what you're saying is like, it'll be interesting to see how this settles out. Like some of these pandemic trends that, you know, seem to lead to a big revolution. I personally have always thought that one reason businesses were were being more flexible when it came to hybrid work, that as you say, I think a lot do favor the in-office kind of model. 
But there's obviously a labour shortage in many countries now, and I suppose they've had to become more flexible. And, you know, what we're seeing as well as, you know, there's many forecasts of recession in different parts of the country where unemployment may start to go up. And I'm just curious, what are your views on on what you think will happen to sort of hybrid work and and maybe people being able to live you know, out of state and, and work for a business that that is is located somewhere else? Do you think that that would sort of that would survive that sort of that sort of economic environment? I think there'll be multiple threads here. I think I think there will continue to be some people working remotely for companies headquartered you know, someplace else. Uh, I also think some of those people, once they are in these rise the rest communities and seeing what's what's happening in their in their community that they're now living in, will realize there's some interesting things happening there, including in the startup side of things. And some of them will decide to stay in that community but leave the big company they're working for remotely and work for somebody, uh, you know, some other company locally, or maybe even start some company uh, locally. I do think in in some of the big cities. Uh, like a New York City, where the you know financial services firms like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan have said, we really believe our model requires our our, our people to be in the office, uh, including our ability to kind of mentor you know, younger uh, employees, and they're pushing as we head in the fall for for more of an in-office kind of a, a somewhat back to normal you know, dynamic. That will be kind of the other uh, you know, extreme. A lot will be in the middle, though. I think it's not just this issue of of what company are you working for remotely? It's also that in these rise of the rest cities, we're seeing the clustering of talent, even the clustering in innovation neighborhoods within some of these you know, cities. A place like uh, Cincinnati has a, a neighborhood, for example, called Over the Rhine, which is where a lot of the entrepreneurs have, have gathered together, clustered together. That's the part that I think is really striking, that, that, that it, even in these cities, it's not like everybody's sitting on Zoom. They're, 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 they're most of the companies that we backed in, in most of these rise and rest cities do have a, a culture around people you know, kind of coming to the office and working in a, in a collaborative way. They just have the benefit of being in a community that taps into sort of the industry expertise that community has. They have the benefits of lower cost of living. So houses are you know, less expensive. They have benefit of shorter commutes. Sometimes they can even you know, walk to work. So in some ways, the best of both worlds to give you some of the benefits of, of being in a city, but it's a somewhat more livable you know, city. And these, these entrepreneurs that we're backing with, with Rise of Rest are kind of taking advantage of that. Uh, and I think that will just build over the next decade. Absolutely. I mean, Steve, one thing that I, I think is interesting, though, is you mentioned that if you're in a city like, let's say, Detroit and before the pandemic and before this sort of became a trend, you would have gone to Silicon Valley because it was it was, you know, you knew that you'd be have more access to capital. But if you are now living in, in one of these cities, I mean, and you're a VC fund, so you're on your side, you're on the, the sort of investment side. Is it much harder for you to find businesses to invest in? as a result of this sort of dispersal? Because if you think about it, 75% of the companies are based in these three states, like shooting fish in a barrel, kind of basically trying to, to find an investment idea. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious, so how do you do this? How do you do this in, a, in an efficient way when you've got so many states to look at? Yeah, you're right. Obviously, because there's so much capital clustered around places like uh, Silicon Valley, a lot of entrepreneurs do start and scale there. And so it is a little bit like, you know, kind of, you know, as you said, shooting fish in a, in a barrel. But there's another twist to that that makes it somewhat more challenging as investors, which is a classic supply and demand because there's so many investors focused there. 
the valuations tend to be higher than if those same companies were in one of these rise of the rest cities. So the good news is there's a lot happening locally. The bad news is everybody else knows that too, and everybody else is is trying to get into the into the into the best companies. Uh, in terms of what we've done over the last uh, decade, and, and it's taken us really the the last decade at you know, my my investment firm of Revolution, and we've really built a network all across the country. We've now uh, invested in 100 cities. We've co-invested with over 300 regional venture firms. And one of the things that's happened in the last decade that I write about in the book that, that surprises people is uh, 1,400 new venture capital firms have started in these rise of the rest cities in the last decade. So there's more capital, particularly early stage capital, that's seed you know, and, uh, and venture capital to get these companies you know, going. So we're partnering with uh, those firms and, and co-investing with them in some of these companies. And then the companies that we back through our Rise of the Rest Fund are, are sort of networked together uh, because we have a lot of different activities our team works on to c- connect people, including summits we, we, we host and other ways to connect people to have a little of that network density that is so strong in, in places like, uh, like Silicon Valley. So it, it does take more work uh, for, for you know, venture capitalists. Got a little easier the last couple of years when suddenly pitched meetings could be by Zoom as opposed to having to historically be, be in person. But I think there is a lot to boots on the ground. And in this next phase, the coastal venture capitalists that are interested in investing in these rise of the rest cities uh, will need to go beyond just Zoom meetings or will need to yeah, show up and really build relationships in the community so they can help the companies they back in terms of attracting talent and, and customers and, and other, other kinds of things. But we're starting to see more firms recognize that the innovation is dispersing that some of the really big valuable companies of tomorrow will be you know be in these rise of the rest cities and it's crazy for them to you know limit their their investing only to their own you know backyard where they can you know drive to the company instead of fly to the company mm. what is left to happen to help these these areas or these cities or these companies because as you said you got venture capital moving out you know the companies themselves are getting more talent from people moving out of these states. What do you think is sort of the next step to sort of help these hubs or these these places become even more successful? Well, some of the reason to write the book is I think some of this is about storytelling. Most people are unaware of what's happening in most of these cities. And so getting more attention could lead to an acceleration of, of of the dispersion of talent to different parts of the country could lead to a continued acceleration of, of uh, venture capital. So that, that's part of it. Within the communities, one of the things we're really encouraging is, is more collaboration. There are different parts of any community and how do you get them working together to support startups? So get the, the universities working with the big companies, working with the mayor's office, working with, with uh, nonprofits that focus on, on startup community development, you know, all in a collaborative way to support uh, entrepreneurs and and tell their stories. They tell their stories of, of what's happening in their community uh, and and really shine a spotlight on uh, on that. That storytelling, I think, is so important. And, and part of the again part of the reason to write the book is there are dozens of stories of entrepreneurs, dozens of stories of cities that are on the rise, and some of them are remarkable stories. I remember one in a company in in Northwest Arkansas called Acre Trader. The the founder. Carter Malloy was in San Francisco working for a hedge fund, and he had the idea of creating essentially a platform to invest in farmland. Uh, and he said, "Well, if I'm going to build a marketplace to allow farmers to sell an interest in their in their in their farmland, I should be where the farmers are." And so he moved to to Fayetteville to to basically launch that company. It's now scaling you know, quite uh, quite significantly. Or in Atlanta, there's a company we back called Hermias. 
that are working on Mach 5 engines, and, you know, basically planes to you know, get from the United States to Europe in, in you know, an hour or two, as opposed to having it be taking most of the day. They have now a big Air Force contract, uh, like a $70 million contract with the, with the Air Force. And they're in Atlanta because that happens to be an aerospace hub, but also happens to have Georgia Tech, one of the great universities in, in the United States that really has a lot of people graduating with degrees uh, and expertise in this particular you know, you know, sector that they can you know, tap into. Or in you know, Eastern Kentucky, there's a company outside of Lexington, Kentucky called App Harvest that started and now has the largest indoor greenhouse in, in the country. And they picked that location in part because they're, it's said, 70% of the U.S. population is within the 24-hour drive, so it allows them to get their you know, fruits and vegetables to these different cities relatively quickly, and they designed it in a way that used 90% less water, so it's much more sustainable, and has now created 500 jobs in an area in eastern Kentucky known as sort of coal country of Appalachia that for decades has felt left behind. So there's just more and more of these examples that, that uh, are happening, and uh, they're, they're just amazing stories. And I think they're they're encouraging stories around the future of uh, innovation and even the you know the future of America. Absolutely. I mean, Steve, I think certainly our listeners would be very interested to know. I mean, you're you obviously were the co-founder of AOL, uh, America Online, and one thing that I just thought about when I, I knew I was talking to you, you obviously lived through the last tech boom and then bust and obviously we're now seeing a market that was in a big boom and now has been you know quite deflated i'm just wondering what are your thoughts on how different this situation that we're in now is to basically what we saw in the early 2000s and you know what are the similarities and what are the differences to to where we are now well the similarities are their valuations uh you know got relatively frothy and then there was a sudden reset and you know valuations declined and and uh, certainly that was true 20 plus years ago with sort of the dot-com bust and that's certainly been true over the last year a year ago the valuations of, of public companies and late stage private companies were on the high side you know there's no question just looking at historical kind of uh, multiples um, and we were coming off of you know 13 year bull market. And so it was not surprising that at some point, you know, the, the music would stop. At some point, there would be a, a valuation kind of reset. Uh, what's different is uh, most of the companies that have gone public in the last three or four years have pretty well developed businesses and pretty you know, significant uh, revenues and pretty clear business models and, and so forth. Um, so they're real companies, and and uh, the vast majority will continue to be you know, real companies. So their valuation has reset, and and obviously that has some 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 impact. But most of these companies will, you know, continue to fight on. Uh, Twenty plus years ago, many of the dot com uh, IPOs really were just concept IPOs. They they in most cases the companies only been around for a year or two, and and they had more of an idea than a business. And so many of the companies that went public then didn't just see a decline in valuation. A lot of them went out of business. So I think that's the that's the big uh, difference. So this is more of a classic market reset based on obviously a lot of uh, kind of macro market factors, inflation, interest rates, things like that, that led investors to to essentially reprice risk in a way that saw valuations you know come down and has obviously slowed in many ways closed the 
market for new IPOs, at least for the you know the you know, at least some period of time, next few months. Uh, maybe maybe the IPO window reopens at some point uh, you know next year. So I think we're living now through much more of a classic reset where valuations did get a little ahead of themselves and and the market basically decided to kind of take a step back and we've seen a significant decline in the value of many companies but we are not in my opinion going to see a significant a number of those companies going out of business yeah i mean it was interesting you mentioned carvana earlier i think you said it was about eight billion i i see it today as under five i remember when it was a 50 billion dollar company uh not so long ago but one thing i suppose that is interesting as well about the situation is we don't haven't really seen a reckoning of the the private market yet so the companies that have not yet gone public that are maybe eating through some of their cash and i guess are looking at their options i was just curious Steve, what would you say you know, with your revolution hat on, what would you say to those companies? What do you think their options are in this current market? Because the IPO market or the stock market looks, you know, pretty tricky to navigate, I would say at the moment, unless you have a, a really interesting offering. I, mean, I guess merger is another option, cost cutting. I just kind of curious, where would you kind of sit in all of that? It, it certainly depends on the company and and how capitalized they are, what what their plan is to grow the you know, the business. And I should say, we've talked a lot about the rise of the rest in our early stage seed fund. We also have a Revolution Ventures Group and a later stage Revolution Growth Group that has invested in a, a number of companies. And generally, we're there investing a few years before the companies you know go go public. And there we did we did slow down the pace of our investing of new growth stage companies last year because we did think the valuations were a little high. We actually accelerated trying to monetize some of the stakes we had and some of the companies had gone public to you know capitalize on on, on the market situation uh, uh, a year ago. We're now starting to uh, kind of pick up the pace because we are starting to see more companies that are out raising money now that are more appropriately valued in, in, in our opinion. And I think in terms of your, your question, I think the CEOs of the companies we're talking to, if they have uh, the capital they need to really grow over the next you know, two or three years, they generally are deferring raising more money because they do recognize in this environment, the valuations will be, be lower than they would have been uh, a year ago. Uh, in many cases, they're, they're, they're seeing inside rounds where current investors you know, put a little more money in, usually on the terms of the last round, uh, because they want to delay going back to market and risk a kind of a reset, a sort of a, a, a down round. Uh, and some, as you say, are, are using this as an opportunity to say, well, maybe it's time to you know, kind of look at you know, M&A options and, and exit options. The IPO market's not available, so, so maybe we should consider selling to some, somebody else. So it, it's a mix of, of, uh, of factors. But I'd say the, the best of the growth companies, including certainly the ones that we've uh, backed at, at Revolution Growth, I think were smart in, in raising money last year when times were good and are pretty well funded, uh, pretty well capitalized to continue to grow their businesses without having to raise additional capital in the in the near term. And you, Steve, you mentioned obviously maybe the IPO market might be better next year. I mean, is that your sort of is that your sort of forecast that things might be might be better, that things may have sort of eased off a little bit on the inflation and, and maybe interest rates are a bit stabilized? Well, I'm not a, a market prognosticator. I'm an economist. I, 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 others have a more informed view. But having kind of lived through various cycles over now, really nearly four decades, uh, I, I think at some point, likely in the next year, some of the very best companies uh, that are private now and are you know, looking to go public likely will. 
And once that happens, once some high quality companies do go public and the, the, those IPOs work well for the, you know, the, the investors in the, in the IPO, that tends to kind of reopen the IPO window and other, other companies follow, whether that's, you know, three months from now or 12 months from now, or, you know, I, 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 it's hard to predict, but I would guess it's, it's in, the, in the next year or so. Okay. And Steve, I guess just lastly, are there certain industries or segments that you think can do very well in the current climate that we're in that kind of get you excited about that, that they're just like, the, it's just the, the kind of perfect thing? Because I suppose tech is tricky at the moment just because of, of kind of the growth expectations and all of that. But yeah, I was just wondering what, yeah, what are you kind of interested in investing at the moment? Uh, well, look, we're looking at the number of sectors and, and particularly what we call the, the third wave, internet third wave sectors, where uh, it's not just about the technology, it's how technology is enabling kind of the reimagination of really big industries and where strategic partnerships are often pivotal in terms of, of really capitalizing on the opportunity and also navigating policy is, is often critical and partly because we're based in Washington, D.C. and partly because uh, I played a role 40 years ago in, in commercializing Internet and worked on policy for, for on various ways for the last several decades. You know, we think we're pretty well positioned as a firm at Revolution around policy, really trying to help companies, help entrepreneurs, help CEOs navigate kind of the future. And some of these sectors that are up for grabs in the next 10, 20 years, like healthcare, like food and agriculture, like financial services, uh, and, there, and there are many others, there is a policy aspect to them and there is a partnership aspect to them. So in healthcare, for example, we backed a company in Chicago called Tempest, uh, a great serial entrepreneur, Eric Lefkowski, started that company uh, really using data to lead to a more precision medicine, particularly around things like cancer diagnosis. His wife uh, had, had was diagnosed with breast cancer. He talked to a number of doctors. All every time everybody talked, he told them something different. And he, he got scared by that. And so this is a data problem, but also a, you know, a, a company opportunity. And that company has scaled quite, uh, you know, quite significantly. And the technology they built is is extraordinary, but the partnerships they formed around that is really also you know, critical. Or another company we backed in Richmond, Virginia called TemperPack actually started in New York City and then moved to Richmond, Virginia. They're focused on sustainable packaging, trying to rid the world of styrofoam. And they work with some big food companies like HelloFresh that are sending you know, products to people's homes. They also are working with you know, pharmaceutical companies that need to keep drugs cold. Uh, and they, uh, they just put around earlier this uh, year with led by Goldman Sachs, like it was $140 million round. That's for a company in, in, in the sustainability space. And I think you'll see a lot more investment around climate, in part because of the recent legislation that passed Congress that, that really put a lot of, uh, of capital in place to try to stimulate more innovation around you know, climate uh, you know, kind of technologies. So those are some of the industries that we're, you know, that we're looking at. They're big, important aspects of our lives, big uh, industries that are, that are ripe for dis disruption. Uh, usually there is a policy aspect to the things that we invest in. Usually there is a partnership aspect where perhaps we can leverage our network to create some of the partnerships that really allow the companies to, to scale. And usually there is a place aspect because of our focus now over the last de decade around uh, Rise the Rest. So those are some of the, the areas that we're, we're focused on. But I would you know, also take a step back and, and look at what's happening more broadly in the, in the, the con economy uh, when the, you know, things turn and the markets uh, you know, tighten. 
what typically happens is really big companies pull back on their innovation agendas, their internal innovation agendas. That's an easy thing to trim when you're looking to you know, cut costs, which actually creates an unusual opportunity for the entrepreneurs to attack some of those you know, segments if they can assemble the right teams, if they can pull together the right you know, kind of capital and, and, and so forth. And that has led in, in previous downturns or some of these big companies like an Airbnb really came out of a, you know, a, a downturn in part for those reasons. I think it bodes well for innovation uh, in this next uh, you know, 10 or 20 years. I think it will be surprising to people. Again, this is the whole reason I wrote the book on Rise of the Rest will be surprising that some of the, those companies that really are the big disruptors are going to be in places outside of Silicon Valley, New York, the obvious places, even this this year. Now, to show this is not just my my theory, it's increasingly becoming a reality. Uh, CNBC does a disruptor 50 every every year. You know, this year, two thirds of the 50, 33 out of the 50 companies were outside of Silicon Valley and parts all around the other you know, countries. So I think this is happening. The book is trying to tell those stories, inspire the next generation of, of entrepreneurs and, and also get more of the investors who are you know, focusing just on investing in a few places like Silicon Valley or New York or Boston to open their aperture and invest more broadly across the you know, country as we launch some of these great, you know, great companies of tomorrow, create some of the great industries of the, of the, of the future and do it in a more inclusive way. Yeah. So move over California, Kentucky's coming for you. Yeah, well, it's not just Kentucky. Again, the surprise to people who've read the book is that it's really this phenomenon is not just one or two or three you know, you know, cities or states, it's actually dozens. Uh, and so it's a much broader based phenomenon. And Silicon Valley will continue to be the leader of the pack. We should be clear on that. There's a lot of great things there. But I do think we did hit peak Silicon Valley you know, a couple of years ago. And I don't think this next phase, Silicon Valley will be nearly as dominant as it was in the, in the last phase, which creates an opportunity for many of these cities to rise up and for many of the companies being launched in these cities to, to rise up. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Very interesting chat. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.